Well, good morning. We are in a series here at Faith Bible Church looking at the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And today we will be in the New Testament in the book of James. Encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. We started out by looking at the phrase Jesus as Lord or the Lordship of Jesus Christ in passages where that phrase simply means that he is God. For example, in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And in that verse, what the Apostle Paul was saying is that in order for a person to be in right relationship with God, they must believe that Jesus is God. That the Father sent the second person of the Trinity to earth to take on humanity so that he would be able to die he couldn't if he didn't have, if he wasn't human, but also that he'd be able to rise from the dead never to die again, which he couldn't do unless he was God. So as the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, made it possible for us to be in right relationship with God. In Romans 10.9, Jesus as Lord is referring to Jesus as God. But as the New Testament continues to use this phrase and unfolds in chapter after chapter and passage after passage, we see that this phrase, Jesus is Lord, not only involves Jesus being God, but talks about the ramifications of Jesus being God in the life of the Christian. In other words, if Jesus Christ, the God-man, died for you, What are the ramifications of that in how you live out your everyday life? And we've noted that Jesus as Lord has everything to do with the fact that he has authority. He has authority over every area of our lives, including our work. So today and next Sunday, we are going to talk about work. Now, I want to quickly define what I mean by work. I'm not just talking about those of us who put in certain hours per week and are reimbursed for those hours by an employer. You may be a stay-at-home mom, but you work. You have a vocation You have a charge that you are raising up those children in a way that they will see the need to honor Jesus Christ with their lives. That is your work, at least for this season. You may be retired, but you still work. You may volunteer your time in a variety of ways. You don't have to be reimbursed financially to be doing work. And what we're going to see in James and also next week as we look at this topic of work is that the Lordship of Jesus Christ has everything to say about our work. One of the things that Christians often are guilty of is compartmentalizing our lives. We have a Jesus compartment, and we have a work compartment. But in reality, Jesus' lordship has authority over every compartment of our lives. 
And when we don't recognize that, when we, in a sense, come to church on Sunday morning, sing praise to our Lord, give verbal assent to his authority over our lives, and then at the end of the day, in a sense, put Jesus on a shelf, and then turn to our work compartment, and then Monday through Saturday, live our life as if Jesus is back here on the shelf, and just do what we think is best. James is going to have some very harsh words for that thinking. He's actually going to tell us that that is evil. That it's sin. That there's no place in the life of of a Christian to have a Jesus compartment and a separate work compartment. It's actually worldly. We're thinking like the world when we leave the Jesus compartment off to the side in our everyday lives. Those of you who have been at Faith Bible Church for many years know that as a kid, one of the highlights of my life was working at my grandpa's farm with my grandpa and my uncle. And during the summer months, I would go for at least two weeks at a time, sometimes three weeks at a time. Every time we mowed hay, I would go and help put up hay. Uh, I would go uh, maybe during a time when we walked beans or maybe when we needed to sort hogs or cattle. I would spend a lot of time at the farm. And because I spent so much time at the farm, uh, my grandfather felt the need at times to take care of my physical appearance. He saw the need to take me to the barber. Now, my grandfather was a very frugal man. And he searched high and low to find the $2 haircut, which was in Menlo, Iowa. And so on multiple occasions, my grandpa would say, we're going to Menlo, we're going to get your haircut. Now, the $2 haircut in Menlo, Iowa was not really even worth $2. It was, it was not one of the fond memories of my life. And the barber in Menlo was the barber... He was also the school bus driver and the mayor. And so you never quite knew which hat he had on. I think at times when I sat in his chair, he actually forgot that he still had on his school bus driver hat by the way my hair looked at the end of that haircut. It was the true bowl cut. So... Sometimes he may have on his mare hat. Sometimes he may have on his barber hat. Not near enough. And sometimes he would have on his school bus driver hat. Unfortunately, too often, we as Christians go through our everyday lives as if we have a Jesus hat on Sunday. And then I take my Jesus hat off, put it on the shelf, and then I put on my work hat from Monday through Friday. And here this morning, James is going to have some tough words for us about that attitude. He's going to call it self-sufficiency. He's going to tell us that we are leaving the Lord out. And is going to charge us that we need to think 
differently about our work. We're going to begin by looking at verses 13 and 14. Here in James, our human author of the book, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing about worldly thinking. For example, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So he's, he's talking about thinking like the world. And as we come down to verses 13 through 17, he's going to talk about worldly thinking as it pertains to work. One of the interesting things that we see here in James is that worldliness is not always overt. Meaning, thinking like the world is not always outward, rebellious thinking toward God. Thinking like the world can be covert. Thinking like the world can demonstrate itself in our lives without people really being able to see it. Thinking like the world can even lift up its head in having an attitude of self-sufficiency. I'm going to read these verses aloud. You can follow along in your copy of the text. James chapter 4, starting to read in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Here in verses 13 and 14, James comes once again to an example of thinking like the world. He begins in verse 13 with a very harsh getting our attention. Notice the words in verse 13, come now. If we were going to put those words into our everyday language, James would be saying something like, come on. Come on, you who are thinking this way, Come on, I want you to really understand what your thinking is demonstrating. So come on. You who are saying today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. By thinking that way, you're demonstrating that you believe that you are in control. By thinking that way, you are demonstrating that you are wearing your work hat and your Jesus hat is off on a shelf somewhere. By thinking that way, you are demonstrating an attitude of self-sufficiency. You see, a worldly mind does not always show itself as outward disobedience. It can be demonstrated in prideful self-sufficiency 
in planning daily life. So James says, come on, let's think about this. Really? You are going to go to such and such city and you are going to live there for a year and you are are going to make a profit? Think about it, verse 14. Do you really know what your life's going to be like tomorrow? In fact, James says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You are the breath that comes for your mouth when you go outside on a winter morning and it's 21 degrees and you call for the dog. That's what you are. You are the steam that is coming off your cup of coffee in the morning as you pour it. That's what you are. And in a very real way, in light of eternity, our blip of a life is just that. It's just a vapor. And James says, really? You're going to go to such and such city, you're going to live there for a year, and you are going to make a profit, really, when you don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow? You see, James here is not arguing against purposeful living. James here is not saying that it's wrong to have a business plan. James is not saying that it's wrong to do things with excellence. James is not saying that it's wrong for you to have a plan. He is saying it's wrong for you to have a plan. It's wrong for me to have a plan and leave Jesus on the shelf. It's wrong for us to think that we are in control. It's wrong for us to be self-sufficient in the pride of our hearts. Many of you may not know, today is a significant day. It is the one-year anniversary of the first shipment of the Apple Watch. The Apple smartwatch. One year ago today, the first one shipped. The initial forecasts of this smartwatch were phenomenal. Apple was forecasting that they would right out of the chute control 75% of the market. You can just See the glimmer in their eyes as, as the forecasters and the developers came to the upper management of Apple and met in this fancy boardroom with glass all around and, and flat screen TVs and probably a pizza oven. No, I just threw that in there. Just all this splendor of this place and having these guys with their charts and their fancy booklets handing out to board members saying, we've Got it. This is the next greatest thing we are going to dominate. Most likely there wasn't someone in the room saying, we're very excited about this and Lord willing that this is really going to catch on. Probably not. Now it's interesting if I would ask, and I'm not going to do this, but if I would ask everyone here this morning to stand if you're currently wearing an Apple Watch. And then if I would ask everyone to stand if you currently are wearing a Fitbit, guess who we would see more of? We'd see more Fitbits. Fitbit? What's a Fitbit? Look at my charts. 
Look at my plan. We are going to dominate. We've got 75% of the market. This is locked up. This is a sure deal. Look at our stock price. It's going through the roof. We've got it. What's a Fitbit? And see what James is saying here in verses 13 and 14. There's no room in the life of the Christian for compartments. There's no room in the life of a Christian to have a Jesus compartment and then a work compartment. Because Jesus' authority spans over all compartments. There's no room in the life of the Christian to have a Jesus hat and a work hat. No room. Because Jesus' authority encompasses all areas of life. Self-sufficiency assumes that I'm in control. We are in control. Self-sufficiency leaves the Lord on the shelf. Well, how do I know? How do I know if... This is really what's characterizing my life. Well, one very concrete way is for us to look and say, how much am I praying about everyday decisions in my life? How often when I'm at work, when I'm providing guidance and education and direction for my children at home, when I am serving as a volunteer for an organization in town, how much during the day am I going to God in prayer asking for his help, for him to guide me, for him to direct my words, for him to direct my actions? How much am I going to the Lord in prayer? I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning to one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, clear back in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Esther, Job's Psalms. And if you don't know where Nehemiah is, you can look it up. And the book of Nehemiah brings us to a period of time where the people of Judah, the southern tribes of Israel, are in captivity. They're in bondage. Pastor Brian referred earlier to the Babylonians coming in in 586 B.C. and taking the southern tribes captive. But the Babylonians became proud, and God says, I will show you. And he brought in the Persians that took the Babylonians captive. And when we come to to the book of Nehemiah, we find Israel underneath Persian rule. And at the end of chapter 1, we read Nehemiah say, Now I was the cupbearer to the king, a guy named Artaxerxes. So we come to chapter 2, and chapter 2 says, It came about in the month Nisan, In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, the wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why? Because his neck's on the line. To be sad in the presence of the king warrants death. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates has been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, what would you request? Notice what Nehemiah does. So the king says, what do you want me to do? What are you asking of me? Notice what Nehemiah's first reaction is. 
So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, so to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. That is an awesome verse. Why? Because Nehemiah is so accustomed to praying about everything in his life. Nehemiah is so accustomed to expressing his dependence on the Lord in prayer for everyday stuff in his life. That when Artaxerxes says, what do you want me to do for you? Nehemiah's first instinct is to pray before he talks. And I don't think Nehemiah here, oh, excuse me, Artaxerxes, I'm going to go to my prayer closet and pray for five minutes, pray for five minutes so that I can come back and give you an answer. No. This is a, what I call a breath prayer. It's, the king says to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, what do you want me to do for you? And immediately, Nehemiah, in the quietness of his own heart, says, Lord, help me now. Maybe, Lord, please give me the right words. Lord, I need you right now. Help me to say the right thing. Lord, please protect me. Whatever Nehemiah said, he simply gave a breath prayer to God. God, please fill me with the knowledge of your will right now. God, please help me know what to say. And then he spoke. You see, that's the heart attitude that James says should be our heart attitude. There's no compartmentalizing our lives between Jesus and work. There's no putting Jesus on the shelf after Sunday's done and then now we're going to live real life. Jesus is real life for the Christian. And so here, James says to us, really? Come on now. You're really going to go to such and such city and live there for a year and engage in business and earn a profit? You don't even know what tomorrow holds. That's self-sufficiency. That's compartmentalizing your life. So in verse 15, James tells us what our heart attitude should be. In verse 15, we see that we please the Lord when we recognize that He is the one who has authority over our lives and activities. In verse 15, we see the proper response. James says this, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, when James here says, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do it. He's not saying then that phrase is like a magical little incantation that if we say it, then we are practicing this passage. Not at all. In fact, we're going to look in just a moment that sometimes the Apostle Paul uses that phrase and sometimes he doesn't. It's the heart attitude that James is talking about here. It's not the phrase, Lord willing. It's the heart attitude of saying, I'm going to depend on the Lord, not on myself. It's the heart attitude that recognizes it's not self-sufficiency, it's God's sufficiency that's important. And so here, James says, no, our heart attitude should be this. If the Lord wills, we'll live and we'll do this or that. 
I went to a small Christian college. In fact, not just a Christian college, a Bible college. Uh, thankful for my four years there. I met my wife there. I, I had a lot of, gained a lot of direction for my life. I gained some good biblical thinking and some concrete issues, but there were certain things that I did not like. And if you've ever been part of a small, small campus, especially a small quote unquote Christian campus, everyone has its own little idiosyncrasies. Now when I was there, one of the things that I hated was when a girl on campus would come up to a door and if there was a guy anywhere in sight, she would just stand at the door and wait for the guy to come open it. I'm not talking 10 feet. I'm talking here to the back corner. I used to, I never did this, but I used to, well, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to walk up to that girl and say, your arm broke. <laughs> it's like, open the door. Show some adulthood here. I mean, seriously, just open the door and go through the door. I'm clear. I'm, I'm 50 yards away. Open your door and get inside. And you know what James is saying here? He's not saying that this means we shouldn't have a business plan. He's not saying that we shouldn't try to do things with excellence. He's not saying that we shouldn't have a plan. What he's saying is, don't go to the door and just say, okay, now I'm just going to be totally immobile and wait for God to open it. That's not what James is saying. What he is saying is this. I am depending on the Lord as I work my plan. I realize that I don't know what tomorrow will be like, but Lord willing, this is the direction I'm going, and he will either change my direction or will bless it. That's the kind of heart attitude that James is saying that we need to have as a Christian. That kind of heart attitude is not compartmentalizing a Jesus room in a workroom. That's saying Jesus has authority over all the compartments of my life. James isn't trying to say that it's more spiritual not to have a plan. James isn't saying that it's more spiritual just to stand in total inactivity and wait for somehow God to give us a message that we need to do this. That's not what James is saying. James is talking about a heart attitude of dependence on Jesus. Dependence on the Lord. Now I want to make a comment here in verse 15. It says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. His use of the Lord here is a little bit different from the other passages that we have studied so far in our series. Because in those passages, the context made it clear that the Lord was specifically referring to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, we don't have that level of specificity. We don't see that necessarily Jesus Christ is being targeted over the other members of the Trinity. It's simply saying God in his unity has authority over every area of our life. Jesus Christ's lordship is certainly included in that view. Here, in verse 15, we find that that self-sufficiency is not 
honoring to the lordship of Jesus Christ, Christ's efficiency is. Now, this little phrase, Lord willing, it's not magical. For example, if you go to the book of Acts, in chapter 18, verse 21, we see sometimes the Apostle Paul actually uses the phrase. Acts 18.21 says, But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again, if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So sometimes even the Apostle Paul said, Lord willing. But if you go just one chapter back to chapter 19, verse 21, we read, Now after these things were finished, Paul proposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So in that phrase, he doesn't actually say, Lord willing. What's intended here is that that is his heart attitude. It's not the phrase, Lord willing, I will do this. So say, for example, you are on a team at Rockwell, and your team leader says, John, are you going to have your component of this project done by July 1st? You don't have to say, well, Lord willing, I will. It may not go over real well with your supervisor, but in your heart you certainly can say that. In your demonstration of your, uh, of your dependence on the Spirit of God, you can sure pray daily and say, God, please give me insight into this particular project that I'm working on right now so that I can demonstrate uh, Christ-likeness to my employer. It's not the phrase that James is talking about here. It's the heart attitude. Now, there is a reality here that we need to talk about. A basic theological issue. A practical theological issue, and that is this. Do I believe that God is active in my daily life? James sure does. Some of you are familiar with the term deism. Some of the early fathers of the United States were deists, meaning they believed that God started everything off, but then just kind of was hands off and let you, now we got to find our way. Today, sometimes we as Christians live as practical deists, meaning we don't really believe that God is active in our everyday life. James is saying he's so active in our everyday life that we need to have the heart attitude that even in my work, I have to know in the depths of my soul that I'm going to follow this business plan, I'm going to follow this plan, I'm going to take on this task, Lord willing, I will be able to see it to its completion. That the Jesus Christ is not only the creator of the universe, is the sustainer of the universe, and he is at work in the life of every Christian, making us more like the image of himself, completing the good work that he has begun in us, and is intimately aware of what's happening in your life and my life every moment of every day, and is actively working in your life. And if you don't believe that, then James' words here are not going to connect. You see, in James's worldview, he sees the lordship of Jesus Christ 
having authority over every area of life. There's no Jesus hat and a work hat. There's no Jesus compartment and a work compartment. And Jesus' authority is hands-on in the everyday occurrences of your life and my life. James comes to the last two verses in verses 16 and 17. It says, listen, if you look at this and find that, well, that's me, then we need to have a paradigm shift. We need to think differently about our work. We need to think differently about our daily lives. We need to think differently about the tasks before us. That Jesus' lordship has authority over every aspect of my life. We need to replace prideful self-sufficiency with recognizing God's sufficiency. So in verses 16 and 17, we see that an attitude of dependence on the Lord must replace prideful self-sufficiency. Look how James talks about it in verse 16. He begins with the little word, but, drawing us back to verses 13 and 14. But, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, this is where this gets really painful. Remember how we talked about the fact that so often in our Christian lives, we think of sin as overt actions against God. Overt sin. Stuff that we see. But so often our sin is not overt, but covert. So often our sin is hidden. So often our sin is actually sin of the heart. And here, James says that an attitude of self-sufficiency that puts Jesus' hat on the wall and puts a work hat on, an attitude of self-sufficiency that thinks that I'm in control and he's not in control, an attitude of prideful self-sufficiency is boastful arrogance. Look at verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and look what he calls it. All such boasting is evil. That's what the Lord thinks about us compartmentalizing our lives. In a sense, thinking, well, today's Sunday, so this is Jesus' day. But Monday through Friday is, that's a work day. And here, James says, that's evil thinking. He's calling self-dependence for what it really is. And then James says this. If you hear this, if I hear this and say, that's me, I'm guilty of this, and then I walk away and don't do anything about it, that's sin. I've mentioned to you before that uh, at my house, we have a duck problem. It's driving me crazy. One of my neighbors, two neighbors, two properties down, thought it would be fun to own domestic ducks. So they bought these domestic ducks. Now there's two white ones and one brown one. And they decided they don't like domestic ducks. So instead of taking the domestic ducks back to where they found the domestic ducks, they just decided to turn them into community ducks. Well, guess where the ducks reside now? My house. 
they they spend all their time underneath my bird feeders. They spend all the time on my concrete patio. And if you know anything about ducks and concrete, it's not a pretty sight. Now they've become brazen. And I'm on the lower level of our house, and the lower level of our house has a walkout, and it's glass all on one side. And these ducks come up, and they start tapping on the glass. And start quacking incessantly, like quack, 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 tap, 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 like, here I am, here I am, here I am. What are you going to do about me? Tap, 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 tap. It's just, I, I just don't know how to handle these ducks. I can't shoot them. My neighbors wouldn't like that. So once in a while, I will unlock the patio door make it ajar just a little bit. I will sneak around the corner so they can't see me through the glass. I'll swing the door open. I will rush at the ducks and scream at them as loud as I can and they go about 15 feet. So then I think, well, let's turn the hose on them. Well, that's really brilliant, Pastor Steve. What's a duck? They're going to think this is like going to water world. They're going to love this. Oh, sure, you're going to really solve your duck problem by spraying them down with water. Pastor Steve, haven't you ever heard the phrase, water off a duck's back? It's just going to roll right off. They're going to love it. They'll think you're playing with them. Well, here what James is saying is if we sense that we actually compartmentalize in our lives and we put Jesus off in a separate compartment and we recognize that we're doing that but we don't do anything about it it's like water off a duck's back it's not making any difference at all and here's what James says about that to him it is sin so we look at a passage like this And I know I am guilty of what James is talking about here way too often. And maybe as you look at your heart, you can say, I can see that in my lifetimes at times. What do we do? Well, one very practical thing that we can do is start more and more incorporating prayer into our everyday lives. You are sitting in a board meeting for an organization that you serve, and there's a tough issue you're facing, why not whisper up a breath prayer? You're you're in a team meeting, and you're behind, and uh, your team leader is ticked off. One of my boys had 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 a team leader in another city yelling on a phone on a conference call. Well, those aren't fun. What's wrong with... Just whispering up a breath prayer. Father, please help me right now to respond in a Christ-like way in a very tough situation. Just incorporating prayer. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and, and you're trying to demonstrate Christ-likeness to your children, but your children are just pushing every button they can possibly push. Maybe for you, this passage is saying, I need to just ask God to help me right now. We don't have to use fancy words. It can just be a breath prayer. Father, please help me right now to not lose it. You see, what James is talking about here is not a magical set of words. He's talking about a hard attitude. It's a hard attitude that says, I need Jesus. 
It's a hard attitude that says that Jesus has authority over every aspect of my life and I'm not in control. He is. And one of the best ways we express it, just like Nehemiah did in Nehemiah chapter 2, is to express our dependence on the Lord by coming to him in very simple ways, in very everyday things, saying, please help me now. It's not wrong to have a plan. It's not wrong to try to do things with excellence. But a business plan is an arrogant plan if we don't acknowledge God's plan. Father, we thank you for these verses and the reminder that the lordship of Jesus means that he has authority over every compartment of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.